anxiety is a huge cost of control. Anytime you try to control something you cannot control, it is going to create anxiety in you. Anxiety is a huge cost. And then another big, big one is broken relationships that whenever you try to control people, it will fracture, strain, break that relationship in some way. Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. My friend Sharon Hottie Miller is on the show today, and I am sure you will join me in appreciating that she is just someone who's so down to earth and yet also really intellectually astute and wise. And today she's here to talk about the topic of control. Sharon is the leader of Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, alongside her husband, Ike. She has written in all sorts of publications and spoken at all sorts of conferences and written multiple books that are phenomenal, again, down to earth, like practical theology with a lot of research and wisdom behind them. I'm so glad we get to talk here today, and I will add before we go to the conversation, we are giving away a copy of her new book, The Cost of Control, and if you want to enter to win that book, then you just need to share this podcast episode on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and tag me. I'm here with my friend, Sharon Hottie Miller. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Hi! (laughs) Uh, So it is really fun to have you here. Sharon and I know each other from way back in the day, I mean, over a decade ago, writing for the, uh, what was then a new blog at Christianity Today called Hermeneutics. It's now Christianity Today Women, which is a far less exciting title. But anyway, we have been in kind of the same circles over many years, but it's really fun because I'm here to get to talk to Sharon today about her new book, which is called The Cost of Control, why we crave it, the anxiety it gives us, and the real power God provides. So that is a fantastic title. I'm excited to get to talk to you about it. And I thought maybe we could start just by defining control. Like, what do you mean when you use that word? And why is it a problem in general, but especially for modern humans? So I define control in two ways, actually. There's the way that I think we... Think of control, which is imposing your will on people and circumstances. And so when Mm -hmm. we think about someone who's controlling, you know, that's what we think about. But there's a second definition that I include, which is the feeling of being in control. Yeah. And those are two very different things. And very often what we're after is just that feeling. And what was really fascinating to me is I have a whole chapter looking at this concept, the illusion of control, and I learned how I've used that term before. I don't know about you. I've used that term before, but I did not know this is an actual psychological (laughs) phenomena (laughs) where we imagine we have control even though we don't. And this plays out in all sorts of ways, like superstitions, you know, mm-hmm. players who wear the same socks through the playoffs, that that sort of a thing. But basically, we can believe we have control even when we don't. And this actually benefits us psychologically, that it that when you think you have control, it, it does actually make you feel better. Your your anxiety is lower, your depression is lower 
for a time. And, and that's why we love that feeling so much, regardless of whether or not it is rooted in anything real at all. And so is there, I feel like one of the things you did well in the book was to write about both these ancient needs for control or the illusion of control as humans, but also that there are like new dynamics, new things at play in our current era. So could you speak to that a little bit? Like what's kind of ancient about this need, but also Mm -hmm. what's new about this problem? Yeah, the reason we struggle with control is sort of, threefold. So the first reason is ancient, as you said, and it's it's also theological. Going back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, prior to sin entering the world, Adam and Eve have everything essential to thrive. They have freedom. They have influence. They have power. They have unity. They have peace. They have security, stability, everything that they need. But one thing they do not have is control. They're they're not actually in control of the garden. And so in Genesis 3, when they reach for that fruit from the knowledge of good and evil, in that moment, they're basically asserting that this is not enough, that I, I also want to be in charge. I want to have God-like stature in this world. And so anytime we reach for control to empower us, to rescue us, to soothe our anxieties in some way, we are just reenacting that moment in some way, shape, or form. And so those are the the theological roots of control, and we are sort of doomed to reenact it since this is Mm. like ground zero of sin entering the world. It almost sort of rewrote human DNA, like spiritual human DNA. So as Mm. the descendants of Adam and Eve, we're sort of doomed to reenact this moment as well as its consequences. And that's where I get the title from, The Cost of Control. Anytime you try to control something that God has not given you to control, it always comes with a cost because you're reenacting that that moment. So those are the theological foundations. But another reason why we struggle with control is cultural. And that has much more to do with our present historical moment where we live in a culture that is constantly promising us control. You know, whether it's on your smartphone, which is saying you can know, you can have certainty, you can have predictability, you can have control, you can know what the weather is going to be in 10 days, you can know when your Amazon package is going to arrive within the hour. You know, we have all this knowledge, which, which gives us this feeling of control. We're also promised control over our bodies. You know, if you take this diet supplement, you know, if, if you eat this way, then you can control your weight or you can keep yourself from, from getting cancer or you can defy aging. And so this is constantly marketed to us <laughs> just day in and day out, but also because of, of technology. We are really lulled into this illusion of control. Mm-hmm. And so that that is really ubiquitous in, in this particular cultural moment. So that's another reason why we struggle with control is we are told all the time that we can, 
that we we actually can have control. And then the third reason is is a little bit different, which is that we struggle with control because we live in a broken world. The world is mm-hmm. not as it should be. We live in this post-Genesis 3 world, but we were created for Genesis 1 and 2. We were created for security and stability. And so a lot of times what we're feeling when we want to control is not just sin, not just human folly. Sometimes that is you recognizing the world is profoundly broken and in need of healing. Where we go off the rails is when we believe that we are the ones able to heal it instead of Christ. So Mm. it's, it's actually three different reasons why we struggle with control. Yeah, and I appreciate that because it does seem like if the illusion of control actually does something, at least in the short term, for us, that is to get, bring us back to a place of at least seeming stability and security and like, I understand the world. It's not a place of chaos. It's not a place of absurdity, right? Like th- th- there's something good about that. And yet, mm-hmm. again, it still is like, well, so why is that a problem? And I think to that point, I'd love to ask a little bit, what do you see as the cost of control? Like what are mm-hmm. we paying in exchange for this illusion occasionally the reality, although I do think it's more more often the illusion of control that we get. Well, one cost of control that is, is the cost of retreating into that illusion of control, because sometimes the cost of control is immediate and sometimes it is delayed. And one delayed cost that that happens whenever we retreat into the illusion of control is that we are not growing spiritually in a way that prepares us to live in the actual world. And so Mm. our faith is atrophying because instead of facing the things that we fear by drawing on Jesus, we retreat into the illusion of control to give us Mm. that quick hit of, of security and stability. And I think that was sort of the what was exposed in the pandemic is that we we had all, because of our technology, because of our medical advancements, we believed that our mastery over the world had grown much beyond what it was in actuality. And so we thought we were sort of beyond things like pandemics, basically. <laughs> And there was almost this market correction in the pandemic where we realized, actually, that was an illusion of control. But because we had inhabited it so thoroughly, we weren't spiritually prepared for the actual world that we are living in. Mm. And so that's a more delayed consequence is just the Mm -hmm. fallout on our faith when we turn to control to soothe us instead of you know, turning to God. But another one that I dig into, and this is in the subtitle, is that anxiety is a huge cost of control. Anytime you try to control something you cannot control, it is going to create anxiety in yeah. you. And we experience this in very, very low levels all the time. You know, I think of my seven-year-old when he he is still sort of developing the fine motor skills for Legos, he's really good with them, but he's he's still developing them. And when he can't, you know, get them apart, 
and he's just forcing it and I can see the blood vessels you know popping out of his forehead and he's so upset and he'll at some point he'll just yell you know and and then he'll break down into tears and he's just trying to get this thing and it won't submit to him Mm. and that is a very you know low stakes example of how when you try to control something that is not submitting to you it upsets you it 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 ratchets up that anxiety but it plays out in much higher stakes when we're talking about relationships you know especially you're you're thinking about your adult children like we were just talking about penny you know before Mm. this this interview and you know what it means to launch her you know (laughs) into the world that is really scary and when when we are talking about our adult children you know in even more dire situations where maybe you have an adult child who is struggling with addiction or or Mm -hmm. could be a spouse you know a a brother or sister or whatever it is in the anxiety you feel about wishing you could change them wishing you could snatch them out of the jaws of whatever destruction they are headed towards some of the anxiety you're feeling is caused by that situation but some of the anxiety we're very often feeling is because we are also trying to inject ourselves into it and trying to force something that we don't have control over yeah and the more we do that the more it actually exacerbates our anxiety and so what a lot of people get stuck in is this cycle where they feel anxiety and so you run to control to soothe that anxiety and then that only increases it more. And I feel like we saw this happening in those early months of the pandemic where people were just running around trying to find, give me a grip on something that can Mm -hmm. make me feel peace. And none of it was working because none of it was God. And so anxiety is a huge cost. And then another big, big one is broken relationships that whenever Mm. you try to control people, it will fracture, strain, break that relationship in some way. And this is really, really tricky because you might not see it for a long time. This is another delayed cost. Mm. This is something that I learned, I've been learning in my own marriage because Ike and I, you know, we lead Bright City together And so we're having to make decisions for our church together, and we don't always agree. And in those moments, I know I'm I'm not domineering, I'm not aggressive, I'm not yelling, I'm not threatening, but I know what to say to kind of get the answer that I think Mm -hmm. we should make. And this whole journey has reframed those moments now where I realize, okay, I can get my way in this moment. I can control this decision. But if I do, it will cost my marriage in -hmm. some way. I might not see it today. I might not see it tomorrow. I might not see it for five years from now, but it will. And so is it worth it? to get my way in the situation for the damage that it will do to my marriage. And that has been a very different question <laughs> that is, right. is really helpful, honestly. It's, it's been really helpful in those situations. 
One of the things that I've been thinking about lately, I'm in this season of, and I've been calling it a season of waiting, where I've just really had this sense of, you mentioned Penny, you know, she's a junior now. And so uh, people are often asking me, like, what is she going to do after she graduates? And the answer is, I don't know. And I'm waiting uh, to find out, but both in terms of actually starting a process of learning what might we might do. I've felt like it's we need a little more time before we do that. I'm waiting in terms of just, I had a book come out in the spring. I'm not working on a new one yet. Like there's just this in-between time. Our son just started at um, a new school for high school. So kind of waiting to know, like he seems fine, but like there just is this period of waiting. And one of the things I've realized and what came up for me in reading your book was I have been going in and out of these places, but largely waiting anxiously, like Mm -hmm. waiting with this sense of, wanting God to tell me what's going to happen Mm -hmm. and reassure me with specificity about the future rather than what I think patience would be, which is like waiting with trust, waiting with a totally like, I really don't know. I really don't know how it's going to go. I really don't know what's going to be next. And I can have a spirit of like peaceful contentment in that waiting and even eager anticipation. So it's not just like, you know, there can be a sense of energy to that. Um, But instead, I have felt a lot of anxiety. And I think that I mean, another way to say that is that I would like to control the future, rather than receive the future. And of course, and we'll talk about this in a minute, we have a a role to play right in our lives. It's not that we are passive recipients of, you know, God as a puppet master. And yet there is for me this difference between anxiety and trust and control has, yes, in my life, certainly it might be delayed. um, Mm -hmm. And I really, it it is really hard to let go, but I really do want to um, learn how to move from that place of anxiety to trust or from control to trust um, and to trust in a God whose love is a power that is much not just stronger, but also better than any power I might have (laughs) to control things. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, if you don't mind, you know, pivoting a little bit into how we don't have control, but we do have agency. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's a really great segue. Are you okay with that? Totally great. Yes. I would love to talk about, I'd love to talk about agency and influence because those are two things you bring up that I think are, have to do with not being passive Mm -hmm. recipients Mm -hmm. of this all. Yeah. Yeah. So the kind of the arc of the book is looking at how God doesn't give us control, but he does give us agency. And we see this dichotomy between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are not in control, but they're also not puppets or prisoners or robots. They have tremendous power and authority and influence and purpose. And the, the term that I found really helpful to describe that is agency, which is another psychological term, which I define as the power to influence yourself and your circumstances. And the operative word there being influence, not mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. And so when when we look at Genesis 1, 2, and, and even parts of 3, we see all these different forms of agency that were available to Adam and Eve before they decided they wanted more than influence. They wanted control. And one form of agency available to them, and this is why what you just said I feel like is a good segue here, one form of agency available to them that that we don't think of as much as 
an action verb is self-examination. So in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they hide, God goes to them and says, where are you? And this is a rhetorical question because God knows where they are. He's not stumped by the tree (laughs) or the bush, whatever it is that Adam chose to hide behind. The omniscient God isn't confused by this. And so this is actually God asking Adam to self-reflect. Like, can you, in the middle of this coming apart, can you just pause, take a beat, and consider how did I get here? Like, when did I go off the rails exactly? Because I had everything that I needed. I had complete unity with with Eve and with God and, you know, freedom, everything that I needed. How did I get here? And in that moment, Adam is unable to do that internal work. Instead, he just does what control does, which is to point the finger and blame. Mm -hmm. He, He points to Eve. And so he has this opportunity to get out of that, you know, control anxiety cycle by just self-examining. And unfortunately, he chooses not to. But this is a really powerful way for us to to stop that cycle, to get out of it. And that goes back to just what you were saying earlier about waiting with anxiety that will constantly tempt you to turn to control. Like, what are the things that I can control to soothe this anxiety in my life? And yes, there are some areas of your life where you have profound agency. You have great influence over over Penny's life, and, and you're called to be a good steward of that. Yeah. But the opportunity of self-examination also presses you to stop and ask, why do I feel anxious? Like, where is this coming from? What is underneath that? And then maybe what is underneath that? And then maybe what is underneath that? (laughs) You know, digging down until you can really get to the bottom of where is this anxiety coming from? Because as long as you are giving the answer, well, this anxiety is coming from my uncertainty about where you know, what's going to happen with Penny, that is not the real answer. That's not really the answer. And so we need to use our agency to influence ourselves that way and really know what's going on inside of us. Well, and I'm curious because you, well, and I guess, no, that's a good example of both the agency to influence ourselves, but we also are using that to influence others, but not Mm -hmm. to control others. And that I appreciated that in your book, just because I think sometimes when we are, um, talking, I think there's a lot in psychology about not controlling others and recognizing that that's actually not something we have the option of doing. And yet it does seem important to me in terms of our interconnectedness and the ways that we are actually called to be ones who love and care for each other. uh, Recognizing that there's a role for agency and influence seems really important. And a lot of this to me, I kept coming back to the idea of love as a power when I was reading your book and I have when I've thought about control in general and I've heard the phrase you know God is in control Mm -hmm. and I know there's some truth to that in the sense of God being sovereign like the creator the one who you know holds all things together right and yet I've also thought about the biblical verse idea that God is love Because love and control can seem really antithetical to each other. Like Mm -hmm. there's a sense in which 
God does not use power to your point to be a puppet master, but rather to love. Mm-hmm. And those things, again, maybe the language is not helpful. Um, but I've, I've, I've been hesitant, I guess I've become increasingly hesitant to say God is in control because mm-hmm. of the way in which mm-hmm. control can seem to be a coercion or making you do what I want, rather than the love that God displays in terms of essentially wooing us and caring for us in spite of us and, you know, all of those things mm-hmm. and, and saying, I want to partner with you actually in bringing yeah. about goodness and beauty and truth in this world. So I just would love to hear your thoughts on the saying God is mm-hmm. in control. What's true about that? What might be problematic about that? What, what do you think? One thing that I wish I had included in the book. I don't think it's in the book. I think this was language I came to. I did a four-part sermon series on Mm. the book afterwards, and this was language I came to as I was writing one of my sermons on this, is that we say that God is in control, but what we never say is that God is controlling. Mm. And I find that distinction to be really helpful, especially in light of everything that you just said about love, because it is true. God is ultimately sovereign, and we can assert that to be true. But what we also hold together is humans' free will. Right. And you see that that perfectly in balance in Genesis 1 and 2, but you even afterwards, you see God continues to honor our free will and and how those things come together is, is very mysterious. But you see it in instances like Pharaoh where God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but he doesn't, he's not operating Pharaoh to enslave the Israelites or to you know, not respond to Moses. He It's not like a puppet master. Right. It's still Pharaoh acting. And so those things are, are held together somehow. And we are God's image bearers, mm-hmm. which means there's an extent to which we need to be reflecting that balance as well. And, and in some ways, all the more humbly and carefully because we are not perfectly we don't always know what's best like we know what we think is best right (laughs) but we don't actually know what is best yeah and so I think that that is I've never thought about how love plays into it but I think that's a really great way of of thinking about the non-coercive power of love that that we are called to to love and not to to control but the thing that is tricky about it is that we can sometimes control in the name of love. Like we can think, I'm doing this for your good. Right. And as parents, that is especially nuanced because we are called to protect our kids and to mm-hmm. guide them and to discipline them at times. And and that's something that I really talk to God about a lot, like as, <laughs> as my kids get older, because it, it's sort of a dance a little bit. But really wanting to make sure I am not stepping on, you know, the agency of my kids, that that I'm really nurturing that um, freedom in a a sense so that – and the way that I've kind of thought about it with parenting is the difference between influence and outcome. You know, I think of Paul – 
when he's talking about ministry and saying, I planted the seeds and Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. And I can plant the seeds into my kid's heart. I can water it. I can cultivate faith. I can cultivate wisdom, you know, all those things. But ultimately, it is God that gives the growth. I am not responsible for that outcome. I cannot control that outcome. Mm-hmm. And if I think that I can then I start to stray into the realm of control. And so even even with parenting, I think that is one area where we can deceive ourselves and say, well, I'm doing this out of love. But the consequences, the cost, if, if what we're really doing is controlling, there will be consequences to it down the road. And so that that's a really takes a lot of prayer and discernment I'll say (laughs) yeah yeah and for me that sense of like the non-coercive that has been a helpful uh way for me to recognize when I am controlling as opposed to maybe influencing right Mm -hmm. um and then similarly recognizing how much God really does I mean even whether it's like the story of the prodigal son where the Father lets the son go, you know, um, and receives him back with love, lets the older son stay out in the vineyard upset. Like there's just a sense of the love being so present, but also being so invitational rather than uh, controlling. And I I appreciate your distinction, too, between control and controlling, which I think Mm -hmm. is is another helpful way to say it. So thank you for your thoughts on that. Um, I'm curious also, though, because you at towards the end of the book, you write about the difference between self-control and being in control. And maybe that goes back to the idea of self-examination. But could you talk a little bit about like, what is self-control? How is that different from, you know, thinking that we mm-hmm. can be in control? Yeah. So the only thing we really have control over is ourselves. But even that, there's like a big asterisk. <laughs> with it. Yes. Because I I have a whole chapter. There, there's a section of the book on different ways that we try to exert control. And one of those is autonomy. So we, we try to exert control or feel in control by basically saying nobody can tell me what to do like if the only Mm. thing I can control is me then no one else can tell me what to do and we're in a a culture that is super into that like hyper individualistic anti-authority we are all about our autonomy and underneath that is really about control it's not that all autonomy is bad but in its extreme forms this is about control Hmm. self-control is is not that self-control is really more about discernment you know whether or not am i doing tim keller has a really great definition of it he he says that it's the difference between choosing the urgent thing versus the important thing and so our flesh is going to want to choose the urgent thing but the holy spirit helps us to choose the important thing and so that that's what we mean when we're talking about self-control is not simply i'm the boss of me Mm-hmm. But basically having the power to choose holiness is, is really what, what that is about instead of to choose life instead of death is really what, what self-control is about. Yeah, and it seems like that sense of there's some dynamic that's hard for us, even though, you know, plenty has been written about it, to understand how we remain very particular individuals 
created by God with particular purposes, particular gifts, all of those things, and yet also can be in Christ or, you know, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so there's this dynamic of being, uh, I guess, releasing control or the illusion of it to the work and power of the Spirit. And yet also going back to the agency and influence, um, recognizing our particular role to play, whether that's in our own lives or in the world. And I did want to ask um, one other kind of question. I have two more questions for you, but this one is more about the God piece of things. Um, You mentioned, and I thought this was really interesting, you mentioned lots of different ways we try to control money. We've talked about time. We've talked about other people. But um, you also write about theology as a false way of trying to control. Um, And that resonated with me. You use the example of the prosperity gospel, and I might ask you just to kind of spell that out for people who don't know what that is and or how it might be an attempt to control But I'm also curious whether there are other ways we might use, like if you're not a prosperity gospel person, Mm -hmm. might you still be someone who's using theology to try to control God? Mm -hmm. The the main one really that, that comes to mind is prosperity theology. I think that the other really present temptation is to use theology to try and control other people. And we we see this in its worst form in cults. We see it in fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. But I think we also see it in lesser forms with gatekeeper approaches to faith. You know, and and I don't even mean the powers that be. I I think on social media, everyone Mm kind of has their own understanding of what Jesus really meant. Right. (laughs) And how all these people are not doing it. And so I'm going to wield my Bible verse Mm -hmm. and explain to you why you are wrong. Mm -hmm. And and, and that's kind of a combination of of control. Another tool of control I talk about is knowledge and information. Mm -hmm. And, And this was the original, like, ground zero form of control was actually knowledge. We think of power as being the main form of control, but what we see in Genesis 3 is, is it's really knowledge, hmm. that we use knowledge to we, – we think that it has more power and more influence than it does – than it actually does. And so if I can just use the right argument with you and sh- point you to the right Bible verses or the right theology or whatever, then I can change your mind. Mm-hmm. And that – doesn't work. We we see in Jesus's life alone that, you know, he's the perfect debater, perfect, you know, vision caster, perfect right. sermon giver, you know, whatever it is, Jesus did it best and people still didn't hear him, still yep. didn't listen, still didn't change their mind. And so there's there's a combination there of us wielding theology and, you know, that knowledge as well, thinking I'm going to download this into your brain or say it just the right way and this is going to change the way that you think and and that that assumption seems to predicate so many comment sections on social media (laughs) totally no that's a great point that that can come from higher up but it also is a very grassroots phenomenon of thinking um, that we can control one another through these almost litmus tests for who's Mm -hmm. in and who's out and um and what's right and wrong, which doesn't mean that there's no standard of authority or anything, but just that uh, there needs to be for us a tremendous amount of humility in right. thinking that we have the only um, 
correct view on pretty much anything. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, so for just as we come to a close, I'm curious about people who are like, okay, I recognize myself in this and I recognize the cost I'm paying and I don't want to do that anymore. So you've got someone who's like, I really don't want to live in this cycle of illusion of control, anxiety and delayed consequences. Are there any practices that you would recommend for people who are trying to let go of that cycle of control? Uh, maybe something that's worked in your own life or a mm-hmm. couple of things that you've just you know recognized could help people on that path towards letting go of control and, and mm-hmm. receiving the love and goodness of God. For me, self-examination has been really huge because as I've already shared in those moments where I'm able to pause and realize I am trying to control my husband right now. I'm trying to control my kids right now. I'm trying to control people in my church. As soon as I'm able to name that, and and that's another form of agency that we see in Genesis 1 is is naming and, and ordering And so as soon as I'm able to name, this is what is actually going on right now. Mm -hmm. Not this other thing that I'm trying to blame that is outside of myself. This is actually what's going on, which is fueling this. That has helped me to see really clearly and then to consider, okay, I can get my way in this moment, but it is going to cost my marriage. It is going to cost my relationship with my kids. It is going to cost my mental health. You know, Mm -hmm. if, if I'm trying to control people in our church and and this was a huge struggle for me two years ago when every decision that we made for our church was disappointing people because Mm -hmm. everything was so polarized everything was run through this partisan filter and so we were constantly disappointing people Mm -hmm. and I went to that well of knowledge thinking this this will convince people if I can point them to the scripture if I can point them to the theology if I can point them to the experts in our church that we're consulting if I can point them to the other pastors we're consulting. And if I can give this to them in the right way, get it into their brain somehow, this is going to change their minds. Mm. And it didn't work. But what it did instead was I was the one laying awake at night rehashing these conversations and thinking, what if I just said it this way? What if I just said it that way? And I think that's a really great indicator for, for anyone. If you're laying awake at night, thinking about this one person or this one situation that what if I did it this way what if I did it this way or if this is the gravitational pull of your thoughts that's a good sign you have run up against the limits of your influence in this situation and Mm. you are thrashing against it right now and so just being able to see that really clearly has helped me to receive the reality I I'm trying to control something that I simply cannot control. Mm-hmm. And if I can continue on in this direction, I'm going to do damage to myself and to the people around me. And it's simply not worth it. And that has really been helpful. That has been much more helpful to me than thinking, let go and let God. <laughs> right, right. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that. Um, And, and just so in terms of someone who's like, okay, I hear you saying that – now in the middle of a conversation with Ike or with someone who you're, you might recognize because of a practice of self-examination, wait a second, I'm actually trying to control you. Like, do you have a formal practice of 
you know, when you're lying in bed at night or when you're wake up in the morning or like, how do you, how did you get to the point of actually recognizing that that's what's going mm-hmm. on here? Um, is there, you know, another time when you're kind of pulling back and reflecting? For me, it's when I feel anxious. Okay. So that, that is, is like the key. Yeah. It's like when I feel anxious, when I feel, when I wake up with pain in my jaw because mm-hmm. I was clenching my teeth all yeah. night or back pain, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm holding it in my shoulders, you know, that headaches, whatever it is, that is an indication. And I recently heard Rich Velotis, he mm-hmm. said that they talk about the body as being a major profit, not a minor profit, and that <laughs> your body tells you you're Love anxious it. before you yeah. even know that you yeah. are. And so that's that has been my default question is when I'm feeling anxious yep. is to ask, am I trying to control something that I cannot control? And yeah. that has been really helpful. Yeah, that's great. And that's I think that's a good – and to recognize something I've really needed to recognize is that there are times when I'm clear that I am feeling anxious because I can feel my – head spinning, my heart pounding, whatever it is, but also that there are times when I don't think that I'm anxious at all, but exactly what you just said, the back, the head, the whatever, like actually indicates that to me. So that I think is a really helpful to actually pay attention to the cues that our bodies and our emotions give us to be like, whoa, where is that coming from? And then bring that into a place of prayer, which I will also say I was struck by you saying in the book, that prayer is an aspect of our agency and influence um, in the sense that we actually are invited into conversation with God, not in the sense of we become the puppet masters who get to you know tell God what to do with these troublesome people in our lives, but that we do actually, through prayer, get to um, exert some agency in, uh, in changing things, which often is going to mean changing our perspective, right? Um, mm-hmm. And our receptivity to the the ability to trust that God is, is actually present and good in what's going on. Yeah. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing this book. It's been really wonderful to see you. Thank you for being with us. It's been great. Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. Once again, we are giving away a copy of The Cost of Control, and if you want to win that, just share this podcast episode on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and be sure to tag me. I said if you want to win that. What I actually mean if you want to enter to win that, then share the podcast and tag me. Um, I also want to say thank you to Jake Hansen for editing this podcast, to Amber Beery, my social media coordinator. And finally, as you go into your day-to-day... I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.